Turn to Luke 7.36. Luke 7.36. And if you don't have your Bibles this morning, you know, just put your phone on Do Not Disturb, download the app real quick, and then still open to Luke 7.36, because that's where we'll be this morning. So we'll park there for a little bit. So you can do something stupid when you're 15, say one thing, and 10 years later, that shapes how people perceive you. We all do cringy things and make dumb mistakes, but social media's existence has brought that into a place where, some, where people can take something you did back then and make it who you are now. This statement comes from Elle, a teenager who's 15 years old responding in the New York Times. What if the worst thing you've ever done was filmed and then shared with millions of people online? And based on what was filmed, that snippet defines your whole life. When smartphones can instantly broadcast our worst sins to the world and digging someone's online dirt is as easy as typing a few key words, our culture is a strange and frightening place. People like Amy and Christian navigate this place. You've probably seen their viral, viral video. Christian is an avid bird watcher in Central Park, New York City. And as Christian was walking around the park, he got to the place that was called the Ramble. There, he encountered Amy, who had her dog unleashed in a place where they must be leashed. So Christian asked Amy to leash the dog and began recording her on his cell phone. Amy, in return, demanded that he stop filming her and told him that she intended to call the police and to tell them, there's an African-American man threatening my life. And what she actually said was, Help, I'm in the ramble, there's a man, he's African-American, he's a bicycle helmet, he's recording me and threatening me and my dog. Amy invokes a stereotype that because Christian was black, she was in real danger. The video sparked outrage that, called ra that racial prejudice is still so shamelessly exploited. Amy's call to the police weaponized his blackness as she pretended to be at risk. And in less than 24 hours, the video between Christian and Amy won over 40 million views. And by the end of that day, Amy surrendered her dog and was fired from her job. In the following days, she lost her home, her public life, her reputation. Christian responded to the online outrage with this. I'm uncomfortable defining someone based on a few seconds of what they've done. It was a racist act, but does that define her entire life? We live in a culture where forgiveness is not difficult. It is impossible, especially without God. This gift of God is fading away from the common fabric of humanity. We have given ourselves over to extreme moral accountability where forgiveness often appears dangerous and reckless and even offensive. After the 2014 deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City, a new movement of racial justice emerged. Black Lives Matter. This ain't your grandfather's civil rights movement, said Tef Poe. This one would be much angrier. Unlike the older civil rights protesters, journalists on the ground reported that activists were hurling insults and curses at police. Yes, Tef Poe, these movements are filled with outrage. Articles published with headlines like, Black America should stop forgiving white racists, or should we forgive the men who assaulted us? Forgiveness is an unraveling in our time, a time exemplified by a recent interview with an actress in Global Heroes. Someone asked her, what is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? She answered, 
Look for your own truth. Live your own truth instead of repeating anyone else's, she elaborated. What's crucial to me is to make my audience question old beliefs. She counsels her fans to engage in a daily practice of asking, what do I need to do today and then to go and get it? If all that matters is individual independence, then forgiveness and reconciliation are of little importance because they are designed to foster and maintain community. Instead, we gravitate to the ones who speak the quickest and the loudest, rarely hear out those who are listening and feed off the outrage of others. In our culture, our reputation and ethical status are valuable commodities, both in personal relationships and broader society. Good deeds and right opinions are cash in the bank, while missteps and thought crimes are debts. And into here enters the followers of Jesus who listened to the words of a man who gave up his house, home, and trade, and who called a rich young man to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, who gave sinners places of honor at his table. And Jesus' followers would pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors for the years to come. But as our society retracts from the words of the God-man from Nazareth, we have become less generous financially and relationally. We are tight-fisted with forgiveness, mercy, and forbearance. Moral wrongs are not forgiven even when the sinner begs forgiveness and raises millions in indulgences. The debts cannot be canceled, but the debtor must be, leading to the events that spiraled around Christian and Amy. The extreme, unyielding, unforgiving moral accountability of cancel culture is not a solution. It is a dissolution of our Messiah who is both merciful and just, compassionate and slow to anger. Moral accounting without forgiveness leads to an unending cycle of retribution fueled by outrage. Jaron Rainier writes this in his book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media, that the more you time you spend on social media, the more anxious you are, the more depressed you are, and the meaner you become. We inhabit a cyclone of meanness and outrage. Howard Thurman writes this, all of us live with some level of hate under the surface of our hearts. Great social movements, like social media and cancel culture, often gives us an excuse to justify our hate and call what is evil good, to reframe our outrage as virtue rather than a vice. You see, behind each outburst around your family table, your neighborhood, your workplace, your digital footprint, or your curated Instagram account is pain. Into this pain-turned-outrage, forgiveness is problematic. If forgiveness had a face, it would be hideous to us now, to the degree that we wouldn't be able to look at forgiveness without revulsion, even disgust. Our culture wields our pain into outrage and our shame into hiding. Shame says, you are bad when you mess up. You didn't just do a bad thing. The shame born in the Garden of Eden silently stalks us today, trying to convince us that no one cares, nothing can improve, and expressing weakness will only further isolate us instead of connecting us to hope. And as this shame stalks us, the culture we live in hurls it at us as forgiveness ebbs away. All this leads Alan Jacobs to write, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an immature sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. 
The great moral crisis of our time is not sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. So into this culture, Jesus speaks to us. In a time of pain turned outrage and shame turned hiding, Jesus shows us the way, the truth, and the life. We exclude our enemies from the community out of contempt, and we exclude ourselves from the deplorable, the shameful, the untouchable. And Jesus says that great love that bridges the exclusions comes from embracing deep forgiveness. And that's where we'll meet together in Luke 7, 36. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. The verse 1 says this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and reclined at the table. And as you read further on, we find out that this Pharisee is named Simon. I wonder what Simon would have heard about Jesus that led him to invite him. Did Simon hear about the events of his birth surrounding Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Mary? Did he learn from Mary's song of praise that, that the seed of David is coming to scatter the proud, humble the exalted, and exalt the humble? Did he hear about Jesus who was born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl celebrated by no-name shepherds because somehow Jesus is bringing salvation by turning the world order upside down? Did Simon hear the voice at Jesus' baptism when God said that you are my son, with you I am well pleased? Did his ears catch the echoes of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 about the king who would confront the nations and the Messiah who would suffer and die? Was Simon present at the synagogue when Jesus read the words from the scroll of Isaiah that whoever this is in the scroll of Isaiah, he would go to those with low social status, women, children, the sick, the tax collectors, the outsiders. This servant would bring liberty to the oppressed, the sick and the ashamed to restore them. Was Simon there as Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies, be strangely generous to people they don't like, to forgive and to show mercy. Does Simon the Pharisee know about this Jesus? Have you heard about this Jesus? The Messiah who ate with the deplorable, disgraceful and the shameful, who invites you and me to share the table with him. Whatever the preconceived notions were of Simon about Jesus, Jesus accepts the invitation. He went and reclined at the table. In that culture, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. And so Jesus is offering himself to Simon at a table set in Galilee. The doors are open, and those not invited can come in, stand around in the room, and listen in on the dialogue. With their feet away from the table and lying down, leaning on their elbows, they ease into this table fellowship from dusty and muddy roads. And into this meal, into this table, into this fellowship, a woman of the city maneuvers slowly into view. The murmurs begin. As others know who she is, a prostitute, a professional adulteress, immoral, impure, and living a flagrantly sinful life. And tightening their shame-directed stare, she approaches Jesus, bringing an alabaster flask of ointment that softens the callous feet. This was all she wanted to break at Jesus' feet, her luxuries and her status. 
She stands at Jesus' feet. But before others sense her full company, she feels a familiar presence rising up in her. Shame. Shame is rising up from the condescending or mean words they continue to whisper behind her. She feels shame slowly peering up as she knows that the people around her do not care as they continue to judge her. And before she consciously registers what's going on, her body responds to the nonverbal cues. She begins to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. She knows well every sigh of someone who is tired of listening to her. She recognizes the irritated glances and like lack of eye contact in every conversation. This dam of shame floods out like gentle rain on the feet of Jesus. No one escapes the assault of a sneer, a disdainful roll of the eyes. Shame pierces as we feel belittled and exposed as foolish and weak or undesirable. But the woman does not rise above shame by refusing to be wounded. Instead, she lowers herself as a cry for help. She begins the job for the lowliest of slaves, her hair acting like a towel. She proceeds to wash the feet of Jesus. The Pharisees curl away from the indecency, the immorality of her actions. But overwhelmed with emotion, she was not concerned with the shame that she faces. And as she lowers her hair, she lowers her defenses. Her hair, a sign of vulnerability and openness. Her actions, a sign of surrender. And like the alabaster flask, she breaks at the feet of Jesus. And there, in that moment, with nothing to offer in full vulnerability, she feels the balm for shame in Jesus' words and touch, someone who delights in her. You see, in moments of unbearable shame, like the woman experienced, we need an alliance of love one that knows our shame and suffering and refuses to look away and offers the kindness of God instead of pity and mere sympathy. To those who feel the shadow of shame and the bane of ridicule, Jesus offers the kindness of God. God entered the human story in the body of his beloved son to provide clothing for our shame that we can never sew with our grasping, fragile hands. Jesus does not turn away from our shame. He pursues us in it with loving sight. When Jesus was crucified, the soldiers stripped him, took his clothing, and divided it. They put Jesus to open shame. And as he hung on a cross, naked and exposed, he was clothing us in love. Where we attempt to cover shame, Jesus became shame for us. And, all, and like this woman, all you need to do is to come and receive him. He refuses to look away from our guilt, our shame and weakness, and he offers the welcome of God that brings forgiveness, honor, and strength. Or you can respond like Simon in the story. Luke 7, 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you hear the contempt, the anger, the outrage? And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon sneers, say it, teacher. 
Simon Ketch, this will help you understand. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? As Simon answered, did he think that he had a debt he could not pay? He knew that salvation is forgiveness of debt, but did he want it? Maybe he can save himself from his own debt. So Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And with compassion, we echo C.S. Lewis's sentiment when he said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. This is why a self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. And in C.S. Lewis fashion, of course it is better to be neither. So then Jesus turns towards the women and away from Simon. And as Jesus speaks, he confirms that the self-righteous, hypocritical religious leaders were the worst possible sinners. You see, people who believe they are not lost and think they do not need redemption can never be saved. And so Jesus goes on to say, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you, get, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon, your invitation did not really want me, but I still came to offer myself to you. Yet, this woman gets my face, and Simon, you receive my back. And Jesus goes on to say, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Deep love, Jesus says, comes from great forgiveness. Verse 48, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go into peace. So the curtain closes on our story, on our parable. And now Jesus is turning to us and asking, are you known for your deep love? Have you experienced great forgiveness? Martin Luther King once wrote that he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. We can never say, I will forgive you but I won't have anything further to do with you. Love, which is seen through forgiveness, is a scandal in a culture that demands retribution and atonement without forgiveness and restoration. Columnist Elizabeth Brunig for the New York Times argues that the Christian notion of forgiveness is the only way civil society really hangs together. And if we continually deny people the opportunity to have an identity apart from their punished identity, then you are inviting them to permanently inhabit their failure and not change. And even if they do change, 
They will not be able to reconcile with anyone as long as they are presented with an identity that is attached to their failure. If you are seeking to follow Jesus today or claim to be a follower of Jesus, what does he ask of you? You see, many people approach Christianity the way they approach their taxes. All they want is to know the minimum amount required of them, what loopholes apply, and how to avoid closer scrutiny. And Peter, the apostle Peter, once had this minimum standard mindset in Matthew 18 when he asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus' response must have shocked Peter. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Literally, that would be 490 times and missing the point. The number is meant to convey that forgiveness is to be limitless. Jesus was declaring that his forgiveness is unlimited because no one really wants a God who limits his forgiveness and yet we limit ours for one another. If you are exploring who Jesus is, know that you're coming to the God who does not limit his forgiveness for you. There is a debt you could not pay, shame you could never hide from, and crippling powerlessness. But Jesus offers himself to you as the welcome of God where there is forgiveness, love as clothing for your shame, and power that is love in action, power to the weak and the one that we need. This is Jesus who turns away from the self-righteous, turning to the sick, the needy, and the dirty, turning to you and asking you to come to him. And all you need is nothing and nothing might be the one thing you lack. To the followers of Jesus, you receive limitless forgiveness from God the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And how do you know you receive this? You extend it to others. You see, forgiveness is not only a gift, it is a responsibility. Unlimited forgiveness is demanded from you and me because infinite forgiveness has been given to you and me. It's demanded from us because it's been given to us. Those who believe in Jesus and his good news become like Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we are changing because of him. You see, Christians inwardly give up the desire to get even. To forgive is to give the offender a gift they do not in any way deserve. While the offender has been sinfully unfair to you, Now you are mercifully unfair to them. You give them something not fair. It is better than fair. It is mercy. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering because you're committed to not to exact payment from them by inflicting on them the things they did to you. And this is forgiveness that is something you can do whether or not they have repented. It is a promise to not constantly bring up the wrong to others, to yourself internally, or to the perpetrator for the purpose of payback. Forgiveness is a commitment to refrain from replaying the videos of the person's wrongdoing in order to nurse your grudge and to keep rooting for the person's unhappiness. But I hear some of you murmuring right now, silently in your minds, telling me, young preacher, you have no idea how I've been wronged. I've been insulted and need to get even. If you only knew what I've been through, you wouldn't be asking me to forgive my debtors. You don't know my story. 
You're right, I don't know all that you've been through. But look through this young man this morning and look to the God-man who hung on the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be wronged, to be offended, to be betrayed, and to suffer. He took the outrage of his mockers in full shame and set his face like a flint. And yet there was no deceit found in his mouth, and when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Jesus suffered and made no threats, and he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. So who are you trusting in this morning? And what's even more scandalous than this is when we have nothing to gain by offering forgiveness to those who wrong us. What do we do when forgiveness makes no sense, when there's no possibility of a better outcome on an improved relationship? You see, our Christianity is one that tries to exact the underlying practicalities we assume must be behind all of God's commands. But sometimes, what if there isn't any? You see, Jesus didn't pray to forgive his killers because he would help him. He didn't forgive because the Roman soldiers deserved it, and he didn't forgive because he wanted something in return. Return. For our Lord Jesus Christ, mercy isn't transactional. It is intrinsic. Mercy resides deep in the very nature of God's character. And Jesus' words from the cross reminds us not to constrain the Lord's mercy and justice to merely what is practical. Because the highest expressions of love never are. We need to embrace deep love and great forgiveness as we follow Jesus. And as he changes us, we are equipped for his mission. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians about the mission of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The mission of Jesus is to reconcile the fractured relationships between God and humanity, humanity and creation, humanity with one another and humanity with itself. And if you keep reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians, God makes this appeal through us. MLK Jr. continues to write, forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together again. The reconciliation of God and humanity is seen through our reconciled relationships, mended through forgiveness. To refuse to begin the work on a reforged trust relationship is a way to get revenge. And don't misunderstand me here. This is something that takes a great deal of time effort, counsel, and wisdom. To those who are learning and exploring Jesus, those walking with Jesus and want to experience his healing, those who want to serve like Jesus, and those carrying the ministry of reconciliation from Jesus into their neighborhoods, work, and pastimes, you need deep love and great forgiveness. Specifically, Jesus offers you his deep love and great forgiveness forgiveness. And all the more, once you have received this, our world needs you to expand and share it. The gift of forgiveness comes with a responsibility to share it. Deep love that bridges exclusions comes from embracing 
deep and great forgiveness. Let's pray. O Lord, we most humbly acknowledge and confess that we have understood sin by understanding your laws and judgments, but have gone against your known and revealed will. You have set up many candlesticks and kindled many lamps in us, but we have either blown them out or carried them to guide us in shameful ways. You have given us a desire for knowledge and some means to it and some possession of it, and yet we have armed ourselves with your weapons against you. Yet, O oh God, have mercy upon us. For your own sake, have mercy upon us. Our waywardness does not exceed your kindness, nor defraud you, nor frustrate your purposes. But let us, in spite of us, be of so much use to your glory that by your mercy to our sin, other sinners may see how much sin you can pardon. Forgive us our debts, O Lord, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Help us embrace Jesus in whom there is deep love and great forgiveness for us and the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Unlimited forgiveness has been given to you and to me, and it's demanded from you and to me because infinite forgiveness has been given. So as you walk out through those doors today, may we be known as a people that deeply loves and greatly forgives those who have wronged us, because that's the healing that the world needs. May the Lord be with you today.